Welcome back to Women of AB Poly. I'm your host, Deirdre Mitchell-McLean. And I'm her somewhat really over all this pandemic stuff co-host, <laughs> Kathleen Smith. Uh, welcome back, Kathleen. <laughs> well, good to see you, Deirdre. My, it's been a couple weeks for us, hasn't it? How you holding up? <sighs> well, I showered at noon, so I, <laughs> <laughs> that's how I'm holding up. <laughs> I'm wearing lipstick today. See, you did. You really went a little bit further than I did, <laughs> but I'm just trying to make everyone else comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> and we have two guests with us today, Dr. Leila Asadi and Dr. Tessine Lada. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. And let's let's learn a little bit more about our guests because we are going to talk about the reopening plan that we just got from Jason Kenny. Is it two days now? What day is it? <laughs> lost all track. I've lost all track, girl. It's been two days. So two we've days. got the reopening plan, and Tasine and Layla are here to talk to us a little bit more about that and about what this looks like with with um you know our our vaccinations for 12 plus uh we've listened to some facebook live from jason kenny heard some uh heard the presser from dr hinshaw yesterday some good questions were going out there and we're very lucky to have two guests with us who are actually qualified (laughs) to discuss this (laughs) educated on the subject matter Mm -hmm. qualified to speak on the subject matter and so Which let's, let's aren't. start with that. Yeah, no, yeah, we are not. No, that's why we invite, that's why we invite people who... But we get the smart and, women. That's right. <laughs> so, Tisine, uh, do you want to start with, I guess, a little bit about your background and, I mean, how excited you are to talk about this today? <laughs> sure. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I'm I'm Tisine Lada and I am a pediatrician. I have a Master of Public Health, and I'm an assistant professor in the Faculty of Medicine at the U of A. I I got involved in COVID-related policy work um, sort of in the fall of the pandemic when I started to feel um, quite angry and worried about some of the decisions that were being made, and particularly in the context of children returning to school. Um, and so I was really worried about that and some and, and the lack of mitigation measures that were put into place. And so um, and so I actually was was venting to Layla quite a bit about this. And and she connected me to, to some advocacy groups that were um, coming together and, and really trying to influence policy to keep our community safe. And so then I've been uh, deeply involved in that over the past year. And it's been a great um outlet for my frustration, but also um, purposeful uh, in that it's it's given me um, some meaning and it's given me um, a sense of my passion for, for really advocating for our community, for the safety of our community, um, and particularly for the marginalized populations within our community. So it's been um, it's been really good to discover that and to discover like-minded people um, to, to do this work with. And I'm really happy to chat with you guys today. So thanks for having me. Awesome. I'm, I'm so excited to have you as well. And Layla, tell us a little bit about you. Thank you. Uh, so I'm uh, Layla Sadi. I'm an infectious diseases specialist. I also um, received some extra training in public health uh, through my master's in public health. 
And I took a bit of a step back away from clinical medicine and went into the research realm when I started my PhD at the University of Alberta um, about three, four years ago. Um, and so when the pandemic hit, I was technically a PhD student, but uh, did become involved um, with, the, some science, with the scientific advisory group, um, doing some, um, helping them compile information on masking and whether that was something that should be pursued. So I did a little bit of uh, COVID related research um, and then, um, just like Tassine said, uh, you know, you see, you see the implications, you see real time what's happening in your own province. So you want to see how you can use your knowledge and what you're seeing from other jurisdictions to optimize the pandemic response locally. So uh, that's what we had, or I have hoped uh, to be doing <laughs> a, a little bit of. And uh, just like Tassine said, I'm excited to be chatting about um, the reopening and you know, my thoughts about it. Yeah. And Kathleen and I both have, we both have children. Um, I kept my youngest home. Technically, Kathleen kept her youngest home as well. Uh, I have a choice in the matter. <laughs> right. She's, she has uh, severe ulcerative colitis, which mm -hmm. as both of you know, is an immunodeficiency related disease that gives her a pretty serious comorbidity. So as I've mentioned several times, she has been out of school since March 9th, 2020. It's been a long haul. And for most of that time, it's just been the two of us at home all day long. <laughs> he loves me. Yeah. I'm her favoritist. From what I've seen from your Twitter feed, she seems awesome. So <laughs> we're... We're lucky. She takes after her dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I I kept my eleven year olds home because I've got I've got three that are still in school. So grade twelve, grade nine, and and grade five. And I was like, that seems like a lot, right? <laughs> to be bringing home every day. <laughs> so, right. so I asked. Uh, so I asked my 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 eldest. Of course, I'm like he's pretty much a man. So what would you, what would you like to do? What, you know, what is your, what's, what's your choice? And same with, same with grade nine, um, both of them chose to go to school. Grade five was like, no, I'll, I'll. it's like, I, I don't, I don't want to, to be in that environment. Basically he wanted, he's like, if I can't go and play with my friends, then why would I go to school? <laughs> you know, recess really is the favorite subject. Um, but he is, he's actually excited to go back next year. Um, but that's another reason why I wanted to have this conversation because I mean, we're, we're in an interesting space at the moment where we know that some people can get vaccinated, right? 12 plus can now get vaccinated. <laughs> My youngest is 11. <laughs> so he's not quite there yet. And I'm like, Okay, so what do what do what do we do with all of this? And and what I guess what what does that look like? Are I, I've I've heard Dr. Hinshaw, I've heard Jason Kenny, both of them have basically said that that with other with everyone else getting vaccinated, it it really will reduce the risk for twelve and under or eleven and under. Um, but what does that look like in real life? So let's start with just some of the basics of the reopening plan. Obviously, all the kids back in school. Yeah. Uh, and of course, both Tazine and Layla will be able to talk to us a bit more about this. But my concern, just as a layperson, 
who basically knows nothing about infectious diseases, is that we know variants have arisen as a result of this virus spreading. And the the variants or, you know, the ugly mutants can't happen without spread in the first place. <laughs> so I'm wondering, and maybe uh, either of you can take on this question, how much of it is a concern that by putting kids back into school uh, pre-vaccination, that we're actually kind of inviting mutations of this virus that might more seriously affect children in that age group? Ayla, you you go for it. Sure. And then I can add. So my perspective, I'm just going to take some steps back um, (laughs) because I think schooling is a really, schools are a really charged subject. um, And you will find that even within the scientific community, there are um, some differing opinions about the impact of schools. So I find that um, when you look at the literature, if you look at some of the modeling studies, schools clearly contribute to increasing spread in communities. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there are observational studies um, and other types of studies that suggest that maybe they're not a major contributor. And as I'm sure you've heard Dr. Hinshaw say on numerous occasions, they think that schools are very safe. And so what I think, I think we're in a situation where um, we're trying to get scientific information rapidly and questions of this complexity, you may not get the high quality of data that you want immediately. Like we've never needed information this fast. So I think you have to kind of go back to first principles and say, okay, so how does this virus spread? Well, more and more, we know that the virus doesn't just spread within like, you're not in a cocoon if you are six feet away from somebody. We think that there is potential for it. And it does indeed, (laughs) on many occasions, spread in the air. So it can be airborne. Um, And it also relies just on, you know, interactions. So whenever you're in a space, a closed space, particularly if the ventilation isn't optimal, particularly if you're wearing a mask, where this virus spreads. Now, there is some data that in the younger groups, let's say under 12, that they're less likely potentially to both acquire it and transmit it. Some will disagree even on that fact, but let's take that as a given that they are less likely to transmit and acquire. But if you're suddenly exposing them to 30 people, even if they had 50% of the risk of uh, acquiring it or transmitting it, now they have many more opportunities to do so. So I think that for me, I would be very doubtful that schools don't contribute to increases in transmission or increases in your R. I'm very, that being said, I think we've seen even in Alberta, um, like for instance, after the first, um, or after the second wave, after the closures in the second wave, and we entered the first stage where we had personal services open and schools open, our cases didn't actually go up. It was only after there was further reopening that cases go up. So I think that you can, and Dr. Hinshaw does this, she legitimately points to these times and says, but look, things like, you know, we were able to go to school without having a significant rise in cases. And so I think there may be, uh, if, if community levels are at a certain rate, then schools maybe don't amplify it. But beyond that, above that, there might be some amplification. So... I think schools contribute to an increase in your effective reproductive number, your R. Um, 
does that need to be defined or is that well, let's, yes, yeah, sure. let's do that for our audience <laughs> yeah, because so we've been talking about it long the, enough yeah. that yeah, we so know it. But. Reproductive number is basically the average number of people an infected person will, uh, will uh, infect. So if the R is above one, then your uh, pandemic is going to be growing. Your case numbers are going to be growing. If your R is below one, then your cases are going to be decreasing. And that's it. Like all you need to do is be above one, it'll get worse, below one, it'll get better. And so I think that schools will push your R up, up, up. I like I, but, but I think that schools are vital. And I think that they are, in my view, most of the times worth that incremental increase in R that you're gonna get. So I think that if you can still maintain your R below one, and keep kids in school while keeping everything else closed, you should do that. And so <laughs> we're coming back to today. Um, I think that in a lot of Alberta, for instance, in Edmonton, um, our case numbers have decreased significantly. And our R is sitting at somewhere like 0 0.65, 0 0.7. So I think we can afford to expend some of that R before we hit that one on kids being back in school because I think it's so important. Now, variants do complicate the picture insofar as you don't want to allow it to be spreading. But if you can still maintain your R below one, if you're still monitoring for these variants, if you're still doing surveillance, schools for me are a reasonable place to consider opening first. As long as you recognize that it will I don't think we should be under an illusion that they don't contribute, but let's just recognize that we value this activity so much that we will prioritize it and forego other activities to allow this one to occur. So thank you for allowing me to say all that. <laughs> but see, that's great because it makes sense to me. Yeah. Everything you've said now, that makes sense without having to do a lot of math. So I liked it. <laughs> I don't like math either. I'm, I'm with you there. So, <laughs> no, I think those were great points. And I agree that that transmission does occur in schools. I, I agree that it does uh, contribute to community transmission. Um, and I also think that, you know, like Layla said, what we should be doing as a society is striving to keep community transmission low so that it's safe to keep schools open um, because schools are essential for the intellectual, social, emotional development of our children. And, 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 and as Layla said, schools should be the first to open. They should also be the last to close. And that's not what we've been seeing in the province. We've been seeing schools being used early on, closing schools uh, early on rather than other non-essential services and businesses um, in order to bring down the R. Um, and so the prioritization has not been there uh, to, to really value our children um, and their education and their development uh, rather than um, the economy or, or, or um, you know, political support. Um, and so, so that's been a real issue. Um, and, you know, I'm not... I'm not sure necessarily if I if if it was up to me if I would have opened schools for the last month of this year. Um, I think because 
there's been so much school interruption for those that have been in person um, and consistency and structure is really important for children as well. So in a sense, uh, being in person school and going back and forth and back and forth is also disruptive and impactful on their mental health. And I think I, you know, if I was a policymaker, I would have used that time where schools were closed to implement mitigation measures. So more mitigation measures in schools. So, you know, improving the ventilation, putting in those HEPA filters, making sure um, all the teachers were immunized, right? Before we reopen the schools. Um, and so there hasn't been a lot of emphasis on that. We've been told over and over schools are a safe place when um, each classroom is so different and the majority of classrooms do not allow for that appropriate physical distancing um, for adequate ventilation um, and for those, those mitigation measures. And so many parents have been, I think, appropriately nervous. Um, and, and the last thing is, you know, children are often asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic when they get COVID-19. And that's, that's one of the reasons why they're less likely to transmit. But what we saw in the third wave was that they were bringing it home to their parents. And right. so then we had the ICUs filled with, with people in their 20s and 30s and 40s and, um, and, and many parents. And, and that's important. And the, the other thing that's important is that the, the people that still aren't vaccinated are those that are in hot spots and are often those that are in marginalized communities that live in poverty, that are racialized, that can't access and navigate the healthcare system well. So, you know, opening schools has, uh, has the impact of, um, again, putting those families at higher risk because those parents are often not yet immunized. But closing schools also has that disproportionate effect on those marginalized communities because they have nowhere to send their children. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the ideal model would be that if schools did need to close, that they would remain open for children of essential or frontline workers. Because as much as we, as much as we don't like to um, talk about schools as childcare, they do serve a childcare purpose within our community. Um, and so those are some of the many considerations. And I think, um, you know, we're, we're, Layla and I are on the same page about schools being so important and there being transmission in schools, but, but definitely mitigation measures. And even for fall, these Absolutely. need to be put into yeah. place. Yeah, I think that's 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 really important. Like, let's not forget that we still have a lot of work to do in schools to optimize. <laughs> and Eleven wants to go back to school. Like, I've always i i try and i try and treat the little people like they are also people and have a say. Right? Yeah. <laughs> if they if they if their decision isn't where I want it to be, you know, then we'll work on the whole persuasion thing. But. I, I like to to offer that up and and he was like yeah I think I'd like to go back and and I thought <laughs> I'm gonna do a podcast <laughs> do I want to do this do I want my kid going back to school because he, he does he does miss it miss his friends but but this has been something too that like you said like all the disruption he hasn't had that right, right. he's been online it continued no matter what the other kids were doing. The other kids disrupted everything, right? When they were suddenly home, um, you know, the uh, <laughs> the internet use was being pulled really hard. Uh, but but his, you know, Hunter's wasn't actually disrupted at all. And and I thought, wow, you know, like this wasn't what I was expecting with this. And, and it took us a bit to get into 
the the schedule because uh, as somebody put it, I'm pandemic schooling. I'm not homeschooling because this was not a choice. Since we've uh, kind of broached the topic of school going back in September, let's let's swing towards uh, some of what our premier has said about herd immunity specifically about how enough people have had it in the province have had COVID that now there's a natural immunity and let's discuss uh, what percentage of vaccination that we think we need to achieve in order for um, our, our value. Is that the correct, our, our value to stay below that one when kids go back to school in the fall because i think this has caused a lot of confusion for people you know our premier is saying one thing medical professionals are saying something else epidemiologists are saying something else so what ideally barring covid getting wiped out completely what what ideally do we want to see come september for our kids uh, let's go to you, Layla. Great. Um, so I am in the optimistic camp um, for what will yes, by, <laughs> by September. I think we maybe need to put that concept aside and say, what kind of disruptions can we anticipate in our lives going forward? And I think that with the level of vaccinations that we have right now and what we can anticipate, like you, you know, you see that about 75% um, by mid-August, it seems like 75% of those above 12 in Canada will be able to get two doses if they want. I mean, that's phenomenal. That is going to do amazing things in terms of keeping COVID in check. And I anticipate that I'm going to be able to send my son to school safely. Like I, I, I think that we, I think it's very reasonable to, um, to have that hope. Um, that being said, because of the elevated R, potentially depending on what, how much vaccine uptake there is, there might still be communities where you see emergence uh, of the virus. And because we have travel, if the world isn't, if it's not control around the world, it's not gonna be under control locally. Because we have people coming in, there might be new variants that emerge. And so far, we've been lucky in that it seems that if you have two doses of our vaccines, then we can the uh, the, the the effectiveness against the variants is has been maintained. And so, hopefully, that will continue. But if that doesn't continue, we also have companies working on boosters. So I think that we are in really good shape, and we really can see the end. And I think we can have optimism. But we also have to be realistic about the fact that some communities will not have that level of um, uh, vaccine uptake. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Layla um, about the, the issue with the communities. I certainly have that concern. I mean, we've heard Lethbridge has an up- uptake of less than 20%. I mean, uh, you know, we're not going to get to herd immunity there. What's the risk for the kids attending school in those communities? Um, you know, community transmission can still be high in some of those communities. And so, uh, so then we're looking at a, a situation where um, those children are uh, at higher risk because simply because it's it's circulating in their community at higher rates. And I think something that um, Leila said really deserves some emphasis is that we have evidence now that 
two doses of vaccine are effective against most variants. And um, so the public health agency in England had recently put out um, some initial statistics looking at the, the um, variant that originated in India, um, saying that, you know, with one dose, you're only getting less than 40% protection against the, this variant. But with two doses, you're, you're much better, you're at 90% or more. So, so I think that that's really important. So hopefully we can actually get to the point by the fall where we are uh, two doses at, for all of those who, who want it. But, um, but also I do worry about those, those pockets of transmission. And I still think uh, because of those, those places with poor vaccine uptake, because of the travel, uh, because of the possibility of new variants that again, mitigation measures should stay in place. And, and when we look at the reopening plan, we see that it says at the end, you know, lifting of masking mandates. And so, you know, to me, that's, that's unwise. You know, um, when you look at the risk benefit ratio of wearing a mask um, and, and what it can protect you against, I mean, it's, re it's really low risk and, and high benefit. And I really believe that for children as well. And, you know, many people have said, you know, but children depend on facial expression to learn speech, language for their emotional health. And I do, I, I do think that's a valid point. But just from my own experience in clinic, um, I mean, I've been masked and in my safety goggles and seeing babies and they've been smiling at me, which I was really shocked about, you know, they can, they can tell, the eyes. yeah, the yeah. eyes, they can tell that I'm happy or I'm, I'm trying to engage them and they smile back. And, and some of these babies are so used to seeing people masked and so, and kids are so resilient. So I, I don't think that the masking is going to be what, um, what really is, is uh, going to prevent their development and their progress, but, mm -hmm. um, but certainly the school interruptions, the, the closures, the high community spread, their parents getting sick, that's going to affect them much more um, or not being able to be in school. So, so I'm definitely um, wary of the, the lifting the mask mandate. Mm -hmm. So let's, um, let's segue into vaccine hesitancy for a couple of minutes because that's come up a couple of times we're, during we're, our we're conversation. We're going to do a whole one on that, just saying. Yeah, but just just to kind of touch on it, I think there is this um, this misconception that all vaccine hesitancy is either based on the Wakefield study that we now know was faked that vaccines cause autism. That's I call that the Jenny McCarthy faction, and that the other anti-vax faction is this QAnon. Bill Gates is putting. 5G microchips into our veins. And I, I, it's really easy to mock both of those positions. Yeah. But in truth, vaccine hesitancy, from what I've seen in online discussions, is far more complicated than just uh, a conspiracy theory or a faked medical report. TZ, maybe you can expand on that a little bit because you already mm -hmm. touched on uh, the the lack of access for some communities, specifically some racialized communities. So maybe you can expand on that a little bit. Yeah, for sure. And and before um, before I forget, I wanted to mention with regards to the natural immunity concept that keeps getting brought up over and over. Um, my understanding, and Leila may know better, is that is that 
natural immunity is not as reliable as vaccine-induced immunity. So when we're counting those that are protected against COVID, ideally we would be counting the percentage that acquired immunity through a vaccine and not naturally, uh, because we don't know how long-lasting it is necessarily or um, the robustness of the response each person has. Um, so, so that's one. And then to go on to vaccine hesitancy, I agree. It's so complex. Um, I have, I have put it on my, um, sort of on my counseling to parents for, for each patient that I talk about the COVID vaccine. And, and it's amazing how many parents, um, are actually receptive to, to learning more about it. Um, you know, the, I always ask, have you received the vaccine? Do you plan on getting the vaccine? And many said, say we haven't, and we're scared to get it, but we have questions. Mm -hmm. And, and so a lot of people just want to know more from somebody they trust, from somebody they have a relationship with, um, somebody in the scientific or medical community, um, and they want to be listened to. And, you know, one of my patients has actually said, um, you know, I, I, whenever I say, no, I'm scared to get it, people just say, well, no, you should, you have to, you need to, like, it's really important. And so they immediately get shut down and they don't get a chance to actually express their fears and their concerns. So I think really listening is, is, is so important, like listening, engaging, you know, why are people scared of this and, and validating that, yes, it, it can be scary when there's something new out there um, that we've, you know, we have great safety data, but but we don't know for sure 100% long term. I mean, I'm fairly confident that 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 it'll be fine, but nobody knows 100%. And so people get scared. And, and I think it's important to validate that fear and talk through um, some of those concerns. And if if we were actually able to reach each of those people in that way, I think we would have a lot less hesitancy. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, I have noticed in 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 my practice that there are a lot of uh, minority, ethnic minority populations that are the ones that haven't received the vaccine. And some of the reasons have, have been what I mentioned, fear and, and so on, but some are, are simply barriers to accessing healthcare. So we have a lot of children, um, you know, my spouse works shifts, we have, I don't drive, we have limited transportation, I can't guarantee that I can get to an appointment, we have no time, you know, like this, there, so there's so many barriers. And that's why um, these, this idea of community outreach clinics, so important, you know, mm -hmm. getting those vaccines out to those communities that are hotspots that want them, but can't necessarily make an appointment at a pharmacy, can't necessarily travel far. Um, and the other thing is, you know, we use vaccine hesitancy, but sometimes for, for many populations, again, racialized populations, immigrants, refugees, um, indigenous populations, I like to call it vaccine mistrust because there's a deep amount of mistrust in our healthcare system that's entirely valid based on their lived experience. They have experienced time and time again um, that the healthcare community has dismissed them, uh, has not listened to their concerns, has turned them away, um, has treated them poorly, um, you know, and, and some of them have said, we're not confident that they're not testing certain things on our population. And so it's a deep rooted mistrust of the healthcare system that 
uh, you know, really doesn't deserve any blame, but rather empathy and a lot of effort uh, to gain that trust back. You know, that's a very good point. I had the opportunity to speak with at length with a family member last week who is an Indigenous person and uh, has those same questions about the vaccine and is having trouble getting good answers in the area where they live. And one of the things this family member said to me is that uh, white people especially need to understand the history here. And when it comes to Canada's Indigenous population, we need to understand that we took their children away, we made them undergo forced sterilization, we gave them blankets that were infected with smallpox, and there's a long history of why they don't trust our healthcare system and they don't trust white people in general to tell them what is best for them. So I think that's a that's a, a very valid point. Um, unfortunately, some of our politicians have turned that into blaming pockets mm-hmm. of in, Indigenous persons for not rushing out to get this vaccine without addressing uh, the issue of information not being readily available for them. They don't have immediate access to that information and they don't have the same resources in their communities that so many of us already enjoy. I think it's no accident that um, my social circles all were among the first to be immunized. You know, they're calling up multiple pharmacies. They have access, they have all the time in the world. And ironically, they're the ones who work from home anyway. So they weren't the ones that needed it the most. So I absolutely 100% agree with everything you guys have been saying. In addition to that, um, which I think requires, you know, targeted um, accessible clinics, targeted information, um, and that empathy that you speak of, I do think that if you look at the United States, and I think that sometimes Alberta um, seems to mirror the more conservative U.S. states. Just um, a little. Just, just a bit. Um, <laughs> there is an identity, um, a po- tribal political identity that um, might go along with, well, do I really need those vaccines? Is COVID real? And I actually think that Dr. Hinshaw is trying very hard to not create polarization around the issue of immunization. Because, you know, you really don't want to have the kind of numbers you see out of the US where, you know, a ridiculous, <laughs> a very high number of Republicans um, say they will not get the vaccine. I mean, that would be devastating in terms of our efforts of reaching anything remotely close to herd immunity. So she's trying very hard not to do that. And to their credit, or to his credit, I think Premier Kenny right now is also trying very hard to not make vaccines a partisan issue. Um, you know, Angela Pitt would not say that, you know, would not endorse vaccination. That's a problem. Like we need to make sure that we don't have political leaders saying that because if there's any question, if there's any hesitance, if there's any mistrust, certain pockets will listen to those leaders and that will increase their concerns. So um, to the extent that they can minimize that for everybody, like meet everybody where they are, including the stampede, <laughs> I don't think it's a bad idea to have that. I actually think it's a very good idea to have the vaccine clinics literally everywhere. Yes. Um, and so, so yeah, we need to do that. So let's talk about Stampede. 
<laughs> yeah. Let's let's have a little chat about the horsey show for a bit, shall we? Uh, there's been a lot of outcry, a lot of pushback online this past week with the news that Stampede will go ahead. Now, from what we know at this point from Calgary Mayor Ned Nedshi is that it will proceed, but it will be quite a scaled back version of the Stampede. One of the things that uh, good Dr. Hinshaw and even our premier has kind of pushed over the last several weeks is that out, the outside is good. People have been telling me this for the 10 years I've been on Twitter. The outside is good, Kathleen. You should try it sometime. But they they both said that, you know, outside is good. And transfer in the great outdoors is limited at at the very least and almost non-existent. So if if this is true, and given it's Dr. Hinshaw telling us this, and I trust she knows her stuff, how dangerous is Stampede really? It, barring, notwithstanding uh, beer tents and pancake breakfasts that just should not be happening in a pandemic. I'm sorry, what are you thinking, people? But notwithstanding those style of events, how problematic is stampede going to be really when it's mostly out of doors uh, tazy maybe you can handle that one for us and what your perception of the risks are i think uh, i think it really depends what it ends up looking like i i agree i mean dr hinshaw's right the outdoors is is the lowest risk scenario um but it, it's not the same if you're outdoors and distanced a bit from the next household, uh, as it is if you're packed all together, um, you know, and and drinking and not aware of personal space and, um, you know, unmasked outdoors, undistanced. Um, so I think it really depends what it ends up looking like. If it, if it is indeed an outdoor festival that is um, very well monitored, very well regulated, where there is adequate distancing, where there is, um, there would also have to be monitoring of alcohol consumption too, right? Mm, There there would, there would, and and I I just, I just am not sure about the feasibility of that sort of enforcement, given the type of enforcement we've witnessed thus far in the province. so, you know, that's where my fear comes from with regards to the stampede, not so much um, that it's dangerous for people to gather outdoors, but more so that to gather outdoors in mass numbers, um, possibly crowded together and not necessarily following rules and regulations that, that may be put into place uh, in a well-intentioned way uh, could lead to, to, to super spread. That's my, that's my concern. That seems like a pretty well thought out, (laughs) reasoned (laughs) concern, especially when we're talking about stampede. Layla. Yeah, no, I I agree. (laughs) I think uh, I think the outdoors is very, very safe. I think to the extent that you can promote anything being outdoors, uh, patios, outdoor beer gardens, not not with the tents, like not 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 indoor outdoor not spaces, enclosed like actual, right? <laughs> actual yeah. outdoor spaces yeah. um that that's all great but the way i read the reopening is that by that point 
potentially there are no more public health restrictions. Like it depends yes. on the numbers. And for me, you know, thinking about a bar, you know, a crowded bar um, with like 300 people packed in, that concerns me still. Like, like truly, I think it would be, you have to have very low rates for that not to be a really worrisome space. And so, you know, that's why I'm thinking, okay, we ha- if we're going to be doing things like this, then please, please vaccinate precisely the people that are going to be the- to those establishments. And we have to keep in mind that I think there will be certain proportions of the population who are like, I'm not going like, unless I'm, you know, two weeks out from my second dose and cases are really low, I won't go. There's those people. There are people who would go no matter what. And it's those people. My daughter's that- going. <laughs> Pardon? My daughter's going. Yes. And so but she, she's presumably vaccinated. She has her one dose. She now. has one plus she also got COVID. So, so she's, she's actually like the, a lot of studies suggest that that is the, um, you get very high levels of immunity comparable to having those two doses. She was so also she, asymptomatic though. So yeah, that's where, that's where you don't yeah. quite know. Yeah, the, she didn't actually get sick and didn't yeah. spread a lot. But I mean, that one part is good. Yeah. So, I mean, and that, that creates problems. Like you would rather that she would not be attending these things that clearly seem unsafe to you. But now that they're open, she says, mom, if they're open, they must be safe. Well, she's 19. She's a freaking adult now. now. <laughs> um, yeah. So- see, Layla, I think that's a really good point that I don't want any of our listeners to miss. It's, it becomes problematic when we're creating a scenario where people think, well, if the premier and the CMOH are opening it all up, then it's all safe. And this is my biggest concern because we know the majority of the populace doesn't educate themselves for whatever reason. They're disinterested. Uh, they aren't able to educate themselves. They're single parent the with four kids at home, and they're juggling. Like there's right. a lot. Yeah, I and they rely on the CMOH and on our government and our premier, and we'll follow their lead. So if we're in a situation where our premier is just, you know, take the chains off the doors and throw the masks off our faces when perhaps that's not the wisest decision, how much should we be concerned about that? I think that's been a problem throughout the pandemic has been that there's been this false sense of security over and over. Like we've been late to close, like the last to close things and the first to reopen things, um, you know, with the second wave, with the third wave. And, and that granted us the honor of becoming the worst uh, in in the in Canada and the U.S. per capita, right? right Worst yeah. cases per capita um, by doing that, and so I think that really speaks to what kind of public health messaging is sent to the community when when those regulations are are put into place or this reopening plan is advertised, right? When you compare it to other provinces' reopening plans, it's the least cautious, uh, it's the fastest. Um, you know, some people have called it reckless. Um, and, and so I think the issue is, is exactly that, Kathleen, is that that sends a very strong message to the community that these things are safe to participate in. And, and they're not necessarily. And, and uh, you know, going back to that stampede theme, 
there's stampede itself and then as we know there's all the associated activities so people will Those gather the fun in things. homes right and so well and then there are also the high risk of super spreading oh, for things. sure so, yeah so so the indoor bars and the the, the home gatherings and hospitality um, suites and, uh, and the right. invite only right those are things that really yes. happen behind the scenes they're not That's advertised right. so, right. so the these travel are, yeah. travel from different that provinces too. and countries um, countries people if, come if from all possible. over the world to attend they the do Stampede and they it's like do. oh my gosh <laughs> well, yeah, they, yeah. so we all we, yeah we've all got valid fears on this right like it, <laughs> if it's if it's done if it's done right if it's done safely if people follow the rules then then this is just a fantastic way to say we're almost like we're we're getting there. We are we're we're getting a little bit back to normal. We are, uh, you know, embracing some some previous normality, right? Uh, but uh, so that that actually uh, leads me to another question. We hear a lot a lot of talk about getting back to normal, especially from our premier. Like we're everybody wants to get back to normal. We're gonna get back to normal. Also, Come September, children, every children keep saying it. Yeah, we'll be back to normal. My impression is we're not going back to normal ever. That 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 time before COVID, that time before this pandemic, that's sort of lost to us, and we have to approach um, this situation from an entirely new skill set now an entirely new way of venturing out into society am i wrong on that am i just being paranoid will everything just go back to normal as donald trump said to us one day it just disappears <laughs> and everything what is all good yeah is will we go back to normal or are we going to be in a situation like we see with yearly flu shots where there's flu season and you're only the precaution is to get that shot. Layla, let's go to you on that. I, I think that will happen. I think that two impulses. I think one is the natural human impulse. I don't think human people like to be isolated from one another. I think that we really, really miss these gatherings. I think we miss each other. And I don't think that people, um, once they are double vaccinated, once they see that cases are really low in their communities, will be hesitant to hug one another one again. Uh, well, once again, I would be sad if we didn't go back to that. So, so I do think that we will get there. Um, the question is how quickly. Um, and do I also think that something like boosters will be required? I think it's a safe bet to say that that, that very well may be needed. But I think that what has harmed our men- the, the collective mental health the most is not so much that you couldn't go to a giant concert or you couldn't go to the stampede is that you couldn't hug your mother is that you couldn't see your grandmother is that you couldn't have family Christmas dinner. I think we can get all those things back, you know, maybe by the fall, like once, once you have two doses, you're two weeks out. I think it's rational to feel comfortable to do those things. Yes. Mass gatherings are a different question. <laughs> at a population level, though, that's at a population level. 
not at maybe the individual level. It's just like, is it wise for us to be uh, allowing for a super spreading event and sparking something that could turn into a bigger and bigger problem? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so yeah. I, it will, be, uh, it will be different from before and it will slowly fade <laughs> into you know, something, I think, close to normal. That would be, that's, that's what I think. That's so reassuring. That really really made me feel better (laughs) because I've I've worried about that a lot. I've, I've thought a lot about, you know, it's hard being in this, but it's harder coming out of it. I liken it to uh, when my kid wiped out on her bike once real bad, real bad road rash from below her knee up to her hip. She was a mess. She wouldn't go on her bike for weeks because she was sure it was going to happen again. And it took her two years to take the bike on the path where the accident happened. And I kind of liken that to uh, coming out of the pandemic and finding our legs again and getting back on that bike and walking, riding that path again. I've been concerned that there'd be a lot of hesitancy that would continue to keep us apart from each other. So I really hope that what Layla has predicted happens for all of us. I do. I do too. And I, I, I think, I think it will, but I, I, I think that's a good point, Kathleen, that we all have been, it's been harder coming out. And I think that's because, you know, everyone thought, okay, 2020, once we get to 2021, it'll all be over and things will be better. And then they weren't. And then things got worse. And then we think, oh, we, we just get over this and things will be better. And, and so it's, I think it's lasted a lot longer than everyone expected at the very start. We thought we hunkered down for a couple months and this will be over. And each time our hopes rose and each time we were disappointed. And so I think it's natural to feel that way. And I think, um, I think, you know, the definition of normalcy really um, begs some conversation too, because like Layla said, you know, some of the steps in the reopening plan, the first few steps are things like reopening restaurants and um, of course, within your household only, but we know that again, that enforcement of that has been difficult, but really for, for much of the population, and I mean, me growing up, we didn't go to restaurants. I mean, we couldn't afford that on a regular basis. Um, so so really, there's a lot of um, privilege attached to what normalcy is for most people. Um, what That's is normal? That's a great point. Right? I never, I've normal? never even considered that. I you consider know, like, it when we talk about taxing. <laughs> when we no, talk I about mean, taxing, going out to restaurants, because, yeah, I've got that, four kids. That, first time I hit $50 at McDonald's, I was like, done. That's it. (laughs) No, that is not where you spend 50 bucks on a meal. (laughs) But that is very true. What what we often refer to as normalcy is an aspect of a privileged life, right? We don't even think about it because that's our normal. So I think that's a really good point. And it's been something too that's like because because I follow politics because I attend political conventions and I mean as excited as I was I'm like could we could we keep this online you know could (laughs) could we keep online access and and basically I'm just getting absolutely not right like we we need to be in person because they because they need to network because they need to 
oh so it, like it's a, it's it's a much different um i think it's a much different atmosphere than uh like the university of calgary the things that we've been able to attend online and absolutely keep those online right because it opens up access for all of us all over the all over the province there's also the issue of so much of this province being rural and they're not right. being internet access for a lot of people. Uh, I know my my husband is a litigation lawyer and court has been almost strictly online mm-hmm. over the course of the pandemic. And that's great for him because he can sit in his office and work on something else while he's waiting for his particular file to be called. But a lot of times the people who need to attend court don't have access to online they don't have access to a a computer they don't have access to internet right so I'm, I'm hoping that as we come out of the pandemic we start looking at those structural and infrastructural deficiencies as well and realize how important access to infrastructure that so many of us take for granted is i hope we come out with lessons learned in terms of the lessons i think i I hope that one of them can be just investment in public health and you know you talk about surveillance for variants but if you have not invested in the genomic surveillance infrastructure you think that's going to ramp up easily it's very difficult to do that we get excellent data from the uk because they invested in that from the get go but it's 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 not just infections you know it's uh, early childhood education opioid epidemic i mean we yeah. have like public health matters and please let's you know let's continue to recognize that education matters, caregivers matter, long-term care matters. Um, so if our new normal is, if, if we don't go back to the neglect of those things <laughs> in right. the post-pandemic world, that would be fantastic. And I'm all for letting go of all, the, of all that neglect to an era where we actually try to take care of each other. And I mean, we're gonna have a lot of caretaking to do because there's gonna, there are gonna be a lot of people with long COVID like it's not going away. There are going to be a lot of traumatized healthcare workers and traumatized teachers. Um, oh to, yeah, you know, some of those horror stories out of like people who or teachers who've had to self isolate. Like, you know, once every couple of weeks they are back in right. for a two week period. Yeah, like and, that and can't be easy. And if you feel like you know, why isn't society taking care of me? Like, why, why isn't my, why aren't my leaders making sure I'm safe? You know, the healthcare workers. But you know, maybe saw that people weren't taking precautions while they had to go in onto the COVID ward. I mean, that stuff stings. That stuff's not going to be easy to forget. Yeah. But if we could come out of it taking care of each other after, boy, that would be great. So if, if that can become the new normal. We can hope. <laughs> so uh, I, I think we've covered about everything we wanted to cover. What do you think, Deirdre? Oh, so absolutely. what if we closed out? with both of our guests giving us reason to hope because we don't have a lot of that so give us give us something good give us uh, a positive vision for where we could be uh, by September Tazine let's start with you mm-hmm. spread that hope all over us <laughs> 
You know, I am starting to feel hopeful with the vaccine rollout and I, I'm going to let Layla speak to the to the hope that's going to come from vaccines because that's really uh, she's she's great at that and 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 but but what I'm going to speak about is is hope that um, you know what I've seen is that people have learned so much about disparities during this pandemic. I see so many people who weren't aware of. Um, what marginalized populations were experiencing, so many people who didn't use their platform to be vocal about things, um, you know, that have come out of the woodworks and have used their voice and have advocated for the community good, that have advocated for those who don't have a voice. And for me, that's been really inspiring to see. And so my hope going forward is that, uh, you know, as the pandemic eases, um, these people continue to speak out and they continue to 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 advocate for for the good of the community and that um we don't leave anybody behind and we address these structural inequities that exist within our society that the pandemic has laid so bare for us to see um and and that people remember this two years from now when there's an election that we want to vote for leaders who believe in a common good and not just in self-interest. That was beautiful. Thank mm. you for that. <laughs> that one, I felt that one in my soul. Right? Exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, no pressure, Layla. Yeah, I was going to say, I'll do that. <laughs> Come on, that's not fair. Um, okay, I will be uh, less sweepingly hopeful and more <laughs> focused in my hope. Um, I would look to places um, similar to our great province um, who have taken, um, uh, who have been more liberal in their reopenings, mm -hmm. uh, who have been aggressive in their reopenings, but still have maintained some success. So if you look at the numbers from Texas right now, um, which just abandoned its mask mandate at the beginning of March, if you look at places like Florida, um, which did suffer much higher um, burdens and much higher fatality rates previously, mm -hmm. right now, owing to the high vaccine levels, seem to be doing really quite well. The, their case numbers are decreasing. Um, things are still okay. Um, is that the strategy I would have taken? Probably not, but it's continuing to work out for them which gives me hope that we will be able to still avoid a fourth wave. And let me add, let me add an extra bit of hope. I hope that we can get to a place where we have the unity, where everybody wants to get vaccinated and does get vaccinated. And if we find that there are emergences of new outbreaks um, or the beginnings of a fourth wave that, um, the premier can feel like he can respond quickly to that, um, that we're all on the same page, that we don't want to see things get out of hand again and we control it quickly again. And I think we have all the tools to be able to do that. And even as we're opening up our public health interventions of vaccines, um, rapid tests, which we didn't talk about at all, which can be used as a, as a tool, and teaching people about the potential for airborne transmission, the importance of ventilation, if we teach everybody, if we all get together and do those things, then hopefully we can have a smooth path to slowly 
getting out of the pandemic and back to hugging each other. And- <laughs>